0: Welcome to AppSec Builders, the podcast for practitioners building modern AppSec, hosted by J.B. Avia. Welcome to the third episode of AppSec Builders. Today, I'm proud to receive Emilio Escobar, who's CISO at Datadog. Welcome and good morning, Emilio. Good morning. Uh, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for joining us. So, Emilio, you recently joined Datadog as a CISO, but you have a broad experience as a security leader at so Datadog today. But before that, Hulu, Sony, and I think you are also the maintainer of a famous tool for security geeks like us, which is EtherCAP, right?
1: Yeah, that is correct. I'm one of the three main maintainers of it, and we've been doing it for about nine
0: years already. Do you want to share a bit of what EtherCAP is about? I used it regularly into pen tests. That's an amazing tool.
1: Sure. EtherCAP has been around for a long, long time. I think since 2006. And it had slowly died down in around like maybe 2008, 2009. But it is a man-in-the-middle attack tool. It's leveraged by a lot of pen testers for doing man-in-the-middle attack to their customers and trying to obtain credentials for for services like SSH, Telnet, and what have you. How I got started with it was that when I worked at Acuvant Labs as a pen tester, one of my colleagues was using it or trying to use it for an engagement that he was working on, and he was running into some, some bugs. And he reached out to me and asked me if I knew how to code in C. I said, yes, and he's like, I'll give you $500 for if you solve uh, these two for each of these two bugs that that I'm running into. So looking at the code, I was able to fix the the, the issues that he was running into. I never got the thousand dollars back, but what that started was the <laughs> what that started was the conversation between him and I. This is Eric Milan, who, who I believe is at uh, BlackBerry now, about like, hey, should we actually resume the support for Ethercap? We we wanted it to work well in in Mac OS. We wanted IPv6 support. We wanted all these new features that it wasn't supporting and we reached out to Ailor and Naga the original authors and they they were gracious enough to allow us to to run with it as long as we kept it open source right and that was the commitment that we gave them so fast forward 9 years we've we've added a few versions now I'm I'm less involved in the coding cuz I I really don't just don't have the time for it but I'm surrounded by two people who are active so feel free to check it out on github and submit pull requests, issues, or or use and then give us feedback.
0: Amazing. Yes, great tool. Used it a lot. And so, yeah, after being a pentester, you went at uh, Sony, Hulu, so two companies in the entertainment uh, world.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I actually met PlayStation during my consulting days, right, for some engagements that we did with them. And and a few years later, they reach out to me and said, "Hey, we're looking for to grow the team. We're looking to grow the application product security side of the house." So I joined as employee number two for for that discipline, and we were able to grow it to a pretty significant team. We were able to build capabilities also out of their Tokyo office, out of Europe. So it was it was pretty good program. The team is still growing, is still active, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was. But it was the first time that I was on the receiving end of attacks from groups like Lizard Squad, Anonymous, right? So, PlayStation is a big target, and things like fraud and fame and fraud and all those things were a lot of the vectors that we had to go solve for. So, really, really interesting set of challenges that like gaming faces, right? Optime is everything, and we have a very opinionated customer base, right? Like, gamers care, and they will let you know <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs>
0: I guess. And yes, Sony has been under a couple of important uh, leaks. Were you in the company when that arrived? It must be insane to leave that from the inside.
1: I wasn't part of PlayStation during their big outage. I supported them as a consultant. I joined after as an employee. And for Sony Pictures, they're a separate entity, right? So we collaborate. But for something like what happened to them... It's a thanks for no thanks kind of approach from them, right? rightfully so. And I think they had the right support from the FBI and everyone else involved in their, in their investigation. So we only support it from building a discipline and a practice, but not, you know, step out of the way let let us do what we do. Because they have a pretty good team there as well.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so then... It was Hulu. So when we first met, Emil, you were you were working at Hulu. And I guess that there you had like very distributed architectures, right? Would you mind sharing a bit about the context at Hulu?
1: Yeah, certainly. So yes, I joined Hulu to grow and build a security practice there and with a very heavy emphasis on on product development, right? So SDLC security, how do we enable velocity? Time to market is everything. You know, obviously for a streaming platform. When I joined Hulu, we were working on the live TV product, so uptime became even more of a concern, right? Video on demand, if you can't watch a video now, you might try in an hour, but live TV, if it's the Super Bowl or the World Cup or what have you, you want to watch it when it happens and not sometime later, unless you purposely record it because you can't watch it when it's live. So uptime was a big concern. So joining Hulu, I discovered the complexity of the architecture, right? It was a complete microservice environment at PlayStation, they were working towards microservice and segmenting things in smaller type of workloads. Hulu had that built. So dealing with that complexity was something that I wasn't faced with at, at PlayStation. So it just required a different approach of security, right? Everything was automated. Hulu had a uh, a platform as a service framework built by Hulu, which was really interesting, where developers, to a Git push, can push a production, and the containers will get built out and everything. So... I thought all the right things were in place. We just had to get security in them to make sure that things were done appropriately. But it had to, we had to rethink the whole, you know, legacy approach to security of being a gate doing code reviews and, you know, how do you do static analysis? How do you do dependency scans and all these things? Because, you know, a developer can get push any time and they were doing over 300 deploys a day to production. Right. So it, it was a lot to catch up to.
0: And could you, could you give us a number so we can see the scale of that? Like how many developers, applications, repositories, if you have that in mind?
1: Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, and I'm sure it's changed since, but I think at towards the end of my Hulu tenure, we had over 600 developers and I believe the number was around 2300 microservices. Now, whether that's the right number or not, that's a separate conversation, right? But that was what we were dealing with. And language frameworks were all over the place, right? So we we wanted developers to be creative and effective in whatever language they felt the most comfortable with. So we had to support JavaScript, Python, Golang. I believe we have some Scala and Node.js and what have you. So it wasn't a centrally standardized environment where everyone was coding Java and use Spring Framework and, and all these things that you can get a little bit more commodity out of those. We, we had to scramble a little bit.
0: So I understand. And as a CTO, it's a tough balance to give a lot of autonomy to people, but also you you need to keep a certain degree of coherency in your deployments. So I'm curious to understand. So, okay, a lot of different languages, but I guess this also means a lot of different frameworks, a lot of different coding styles and practices, right? That's a nightmare for a security owner.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, so I think, you know, we had to rely on the developers being strong at what they're good at, right, at at coding, right? So we had to leverage that partnership, you know, all these frameworks, obviously different attack surfaces, right? So we had to find ways of how to put security in place in a manner that wasn't disruptive, that didn't impact production, that it was easily adoptable, right? So starting with the why, making security the default, Right. I always tell teams that if you have a developer choosing between defaults and security, default is always going to win. So, why not make security the default? So, we had to take, you know, chip away at that mindset and and approach, right? So, we had to put leverage as much of the CI CD as we could, do things as infrastructure as code, leverage security controls that you can load via library or through infrastructure as code or some sort of automation. So a lot of self-service where we wanted developers and teams to, to serve themselves security and we had to build a pay for, for enable to for them to have that enabled for them. But then on the, on the back end, to your point of how do you maintain some level of consistency and priority towards quality and security, we made big strides and efforts into A, tying security as a quality entity, right? A lot of times you see security and quality being two separate worlds and they want to approach using different processes and different language to approach what I consider to be the same problem, right? If I'm a consumer of a service and whether it's a functional bug or a security bug, it still impacts my experience, right? So I united them to the point that we were reporting to the executives and stakeholders security issues as part of the quality conversation, right? And we use the same language as in like escape defects, recurrent defects and track those Because we wanted to leverage the already made it or already established interruption process that QA had for developers for security concerns as well, and that that got us a lot of wins there, where we were not just saying, "Hey, we want to do this because of security." It's like here's a quality element to it that everyone cares, right? As a developer, you don't want to be the reason for why a service or there's a bug in production that people complain about on Reddit or whatever. You have pride in the work that you do, so I think leveraging that helped us a lot with security.
0: Super interesting, but I guess when you have a bug, so it could be impacting the customer experience, like, I don't know, they can't start a movie. It could have a security issue. In the end, you want both to be fixed, but the available developer time is still limited. How did you prioritize security versus quality? I guess you still have to make that call somehow. Right.
1: Yeah, and and that's exactly why I I thought combining those two problems into the same conversation helped because then we can actually do the trade-off conversations in one forum versus having silos for security or quality issues and sort of not being able to combine the two of them. So yes, we had to be very pragmatic about if it's a security issue, how easy is it to exploit? How likely is it to be exploited? What's the impact of exploitation, right? And Hulu being, you know, very strict about the quality of the product, even if it was a security issue that will lead to a bad experience from a consumer, whether they couldn't start a, a movie, a show, they couldn't save something to DVR, whatever core functionality the product has, we will still treat it as equally important as a functional issue, right? So the, the how the bug manifests itself became less important than the impact of the bug to consumers, right? So that put Again, that put the two security and quality in the same conversation, and then we will have the trade-off talks. If it was a functional bug that was being seen by 68% of the consumer base and a security bug that was only being presented to 3% of the consumer base, and that was a no-brainer, right? We will choose the, the functional bug issue over the security bug, right? So that's when pragmatism comes to play.
0: Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so with such a large distributed architecture, so you have a lot of simple, small pieces, but the overall complexity is insane, I guess. How did you manage to cope with that? Did anyone have like a holistic vision of the system? How did you uh, like enumerate 2000 services?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a lot of tribal knowledge for sure. And that was a problem, right? Because, well, I, I think one thing is, is also to admit to the fact that security will never have the same level of understanding and visibility as like the developers have of their own software, right, of their own services. So this goes back to the mindset of why security is there, right? So security is there to help developers write secure code and secure and stable services. But if you try and spend energy on security, being able to see and understand 100% of what's there, then that, I think you're burning a lot of candles on that side that maybe is not gonna drive a lot of result, right? It's good to have an understanding but is it good to have a 100% understanding? I don't think so, because you can rely on the developer community of your company to give you that understanding and empower them to make those decisions, just measure what security looks like for them, right? So, you know, one example is around abuse, right, of, of services. And one of the things that we did was that we were empowering development teams to be able to block what they thought was malicious traffic. And the reason for that was like the security team was getting page, let's say at four in the morning because some some IPs were hitting a, a few services pretty hard, right? And the question that we were always get from developers is, is this is this a security concern or not? Or Is this attack traffic or not? And it always puts us in a weird position because we don't know necessarily how the service gets called. Like yes, we have an idea, but we don't know it better than the developers who built that service know, right? So. I would always like to, we always turn around the question to them and say, hey, based on the use cases that you've built into this service and what you see for what P99 or normal patterns look like for you, what do you think, right? And the answer would always come back and say, yeah, this looks like they're trying something weird that is not part of the normal flow. So the question then was like, then you block them versus we block them for you. So we actually built those capabilities for them and one of the team members on the Hulu security team built a service because now we had to deal with the erroneous blocking of somebody who's a human doing something that was just a mistake. So we, my team built a service called is it blocked by the WAF.hulu.com that customer service could access internally and say, hey, this person is complaining about it. Here's the description of what they were trying to do. Are they actually being blocked and that they could actually unblock from there? right? So we enabled the unblocking part as well. But ultimately, what that led to was teams making more informed decisions for the things that they fully own, and therefore reducing the need for security to be able to know 100% of everything that's happening. Because that's just unrealistic for a dynamic environment like a microservice cloud environment that Hulu is, and so is Datadog, right? So we're not here to cover all the ground. We're here to make sure that people can cover their own ground.
0: Okay, super interesting. And so I guess as security teams, we are always looking to get a stronger connection to the developers and to the other teams. So the fact of giving them the power and ownership, choosing who to block is amazing in that sense. But as a prerequisite, I guess the teams were already like owning the operations of their service, the availability, the performance, etc. right? Yes. So you already need a, a pretty a distributed model to make that work.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes, that only works if your company has like the philosophy of if you build it, you own it type of mindset, right? So if the developers are just there to write code and they push it and some other team is then responsible for the operational aspects of the service and, and uptime, then again, you're just creating silos, right, of knowledge. So I don't see how a developer can be a successful software engineer if the performance aspects of of whatever that developer is working on is sort of like abstracted from them. So how do you optimize your code? What do you add the right caching layers? What do you write the, add the, the right optimizations to your service if you don't have that visibility or control over that, right? So that's why I love that mindset of, of you build it, your own it. It does create a little bit of security nightmare because saying you, yes, you do have engineers when you require access to that production environment, you require engineers to have that level of access So instead of like focusing on removing that access is providing the right access, right? So one example, a lot of times developers need access to production databases, right? Or production configuration files. And the reason for it is because there's no other tooling that is exposing them to the configuration settings of their service and for them to be able to make changes if they need to in a safe way. So instead of saying, no, you don't need access and and you shouldn't have access because you're a developer... It's more about like, how do we actually enable you to do what you need to do in a way that's safe, right? So this goes back to the whole premise of security being there is to allow people to do their job without the fear of threat, right? So that's one way of you doing it. It's like, I understand you need to do this because you're the one getting woken up at two in the morning when your service goes down. How about we give you the right tools uh, that enable you to do that where maybe you don't have to get woken up where a tool just does it for you and it's been tested and proven so much that we're confident you don't have to get woken up if it does something, right? So that's, it's just a different mindset, right? But you have to have that philosophy across the organization. Otherwise, it's not going to work.
0: Yes. And so did you trust all the teams to react equally to security alerts or issues? I think this depends on the
1: maturity of the team, right? I haven't met a team that absolutely does not care about security. However, I have met teams that have other concerns that are not security at the moment. Or I have met teams that don't understand what security is there to do, how can we help, and what does it mean for them? So clarifying those go a long way. So yes, we have, but you have to start with trust, right? I think the lack of trust is a poison in organizations and on teams, right? And if you don't have it, like if security doesn't trust developers, then how do you expect them to trust security? And I think, you know, trust goes both ways. And I've seen a lot of security teams sort of, not trust developers, but then complain about security not having a voice at the table, right? And it's like, well, obviously, because if you don't establish a a culture of trust, they're not gonna trust you, right? So why expect trust when you're not given it? So yes, we had to start with a level of trust, but we also had to understand where those teams were from a maturity standpoint, right? Like if you work with a team that is doing no regression testing, no unit testing, Most likely, they're not going to do any security testing, right? (laughs) So help them fix their stuff, and then security will gain a benefit from it. It might be a longer-term investment that you want, but in the end, you get the full investment uh, rewarded back to you versus you got security done great, but have you actually helped the organization move forward? And the answer will be no.
0: I love the concept of, yes, different levels of maturity. And yes, obviously, the first priority is to have a service that works. And once you're there, you can then invest in different areas, like security. In such a large environment, was that something that was conscious? And like maybe you knew about the maturity of the teams? Did you add like a spreadsheet or was that more like we give everyone the same task, but some are more successful than uh, others?
1: Yeah, I think it's more of the latter, right? I don't think we had a structure around sort of tracking where maturity was. I prefer for those to be gained by conversations and relationships versus labeling, right? And it's just our job to make sure that while we're building relationships with external stakeholders and teams, we can call those things out and we build a a system where we feel comfortable calling those things out. And most likely, they are aware of where their deficiencies are. And if you open that door, they will come to you with that, right? And they they will say, hey, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm worried about X. And then that is the gift, the token that security is given that you have to leverage and say, okay, let me help you with X so then we can work on Y, right? And a lot of teams approach it with like, well, X is not my problem. You know, get back to me when that's solved. Then that door gets closed for you, right? So no, we didn't have a, a rigid way of doing it. But we sort of understood based on, on on conversations and answers that we will get and questions that we will get of where teams were. But we were not. It wasn't like an official thing, right? Because I don't like to label teams that way. It was just more of I like be more situationally aware of like how much handholding you need to give teams and and be be accepting of that.
0: And so at the scale of 600 developers, how do you spread the world? Like that's enforcing something that is cultural, right? Like you own the security, you own the security aspects of your production, of your code. How did the word spread out to all those teams?
1: I don't think I have like a silver bullet for doing that, right? I think you have to find what works for your organization. Like, for example, Hulu you know, I always push the teams to have brown bag sessions, to get in front of engineers. We will talk at engineering all hands. We will find any forum that we could to make security visible and the partnership model to be outspoken about, right? Of we're here to help. So leverage whatever the company has, right? So, you know, Hulu, they had this kudos program, right? Which is a kudos program. So I always make sure that we gave people kudos for helping and working with us, right? Oh, why don't... One of the ideas that I stole from somebody was buying like dumpster fire candles, right? And it was like giving people a dumpster fire candle if they sold a dumpster fire, right? Or using budget for having security backpacks, t-shirts, or what have you. Like People care to be recognized, so you just leverage that. So I think a combination of those things was what got the word out. I mean, I don't think we were perfect when the time that I left, but comparing to how the team was, During my initial time at Hulu where we're in that, there was a big progress there, but it was just with being humble and being open, right? And, you know, not being afraid of telling a developer team, hey, I don't understand this, you know, can you help me, right? So that way we're also showing weakness. So I don't have a silver bullet, but I think leverage whatever your organization has. Use rewards programs, use brownbacks, use demos, use get in front of people, because you will find out that people care more about security than you think.
0: I love the <laughs> I love this conclusion, but I agree. If you give them the right interlocutor and the right mindset to communicate, yes, developers and any engineer actually care about the thing that is well done, and security is obviously a, a part of that uh, definition of well done. And one thing that I find also impressive is on such a large scale system, the tooling to monitor to examine, I don't know, to look for uh, attacks, to check traces from one service to another. It's something that is still in progress today. Like uh, we don't have a good unified way. So things are uh, arising like Open telemetry. So, I guess working at Datadog, you are very aware of that, Emilio. But so, like, this is changing fast. And so, we can see the end of the tunnel. But did you add like compelling tooling to help you with that and debug uh, security incidents happening in deep microservices, for instance?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is something that Datadog is also involved in solving, right? Like you mentioned, uh, being part of the Open Telemetry group and contributing to that. I agree with you. I don't think it's a problem that is fully solved, right? And we are making, you know, we have been making strides on solving and helping customers solve that at Datadog. At Hulu, I don't think we had a good answer to that. So we leveraged a lot more on the teams coming to us with whatever they were seeing, right? We had a good understanding of where the controls were applied to, where the blind spots were, but then everything is, you know, you're making business decisions as to like how deep down you add security controls to it, so we had to rely also on the visibility and observability that the services produce, right? So make sure that we told, we work with developers on, hey, you should log these transactions that are erroneous so that way we can bubble them up at some point where somebody will see them and, and react to them. So it wasn't necessarily with like security controls, but it, it, we had to take a different approach of leveraging observability, telemetry, and relying on products like, you know, Datadog of, of being able to centralize that and build the tracking and monitoring for it and alerting for it. So, yes, we had to get really creative about the signals that we were looking for and what alerting to do. But at Hulu, we found out that developers were really in tune with how their services were performing, and they would immediately alert us if they saw something weird happening with like the last 10 minutes, right? So they were they were on it. So the observability there was pretty crucial for us, and it helped us a lot, right? So that way we, we were not required to put the same level of controls that you would put to a service that is exposed to the internet and handles like sensitive data down to the service that is probably the most far removed from everything in the world that might handle like I don't know like beacons from from clients right but this is like six layers removed from the world so that allowed us to be that be cost conscious but also friction conscious as well of where do we actually want to, what are the battles that we want to go fight and and where we want to focus energy, right? We have finite resources dealing with infinite attacks, right? So we had to be very specific about where we paid attention to.
0: Yes. Thank you. So you mentioned, yeah, Datadog. And so when did you start at Datadog, Emilio?
1: Yes. I joined Datadog at September this year. So it's uh, early three months in. (laughs) And uh, it's been uh, an amazing journey so far. Uh, It's a great organization, but it's uh, still, you know, drinking out of the fire hose, as you say, and and learning a lot. There's a lot of ground to cover, so I'm excited about the challenge and opportunity to learn a a different world, right? I come from the consumer world, so joining a a B2B enterprise company is is a different world, but similar engineering challenges that even a consumer company goes through, right? So uh, I'm familiar with those. So getting exposed to customers and the customer demands and asks and rights within their contracts is, is a new world that I've, I've been getting exposed to.
0: Yes. So I'm very uh, admirative of Datadog. Really love the company and the product. So we at Screen, we use also a Datadog for our internal uh, systems uh, monitoring the pace of the company is impressive Uh, the new features being released uh, every uh, I don't know exactly how much but uh, like I feel I got newsletter weekly with amazing announcements uh, in it so I'm uh, avid of that as a geek at uh, Hurt as well. And so, yes, that's a really uh, high-paced uh, company. So I guess uh, Hulu was also pretty uh, modern and, uh, and very high-paced with everything that you uh, described. But that makes a fast-moving environment. And so basically, the Hurt of what you need to secure as a CISO is really moving moving fast. How are you coping with that? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, that's assuming that I'm coping it. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it, you know, I, I think, to, yes, Datadog is interesting, right? Because the joke that I have is that it is an enterprise company that wants to move at consumer company speeds, right? Again, going back to time to market and and the teams are very, very active, to your point. like we, The product teams and the engineering teams are extremely high energy and pushing an all-cylinders. So... I think it's it's following the same philosophy, right? And this is the interesting challenge of how do I apply the philosophy that I just mentioned uh, to an enterprise company, right? And how do we get there? The one really exciting thing to see after joining Datadog and, and being exposed to it is how much people care internally about the quality and the security of the product. Not that Hulu didn't care, right? But there's that element when you work for an enterprise product company where, you have to have the security, right? I think the difference between a consumer and an enterprise company is consumers sort of expect security to be done. Enterprises demand security to be done and they put it in contracts for you, right? So showing and seeing how people internally actually care about satisfying customers and helping customers is great. But then on top of it is how do we actually help customers get better at what they do, right? So I think that's that's something exciting about Datadog that I wasn't uh, seeing on the consumer side. Consumer is you watch the shows that we, you want to watch. We give you the content we think you want to watch. But that doesn't mean we're going to make you a better TV watcher, right? That's not a, a, a discipline that I think you want to improve on. Here is we're helping companies go through, you know, cloud transition or expansion or just more DevOps approach. And we're helping them with that along their journey. So I, I find that really cool and exciting.
0: And Doing that also means that the company is sharing so many projects. You have uh, in-app agents, you have server agents, you have cloud watchers, uh, integrations, etc. And so that's also lots of open source. Did you find the open source dimension a difference to deal with? I can imagine uh, like more open source mean more uh, likelihood of leaking secrets or receiving security issues from non-standard channels. Any challenge related to that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So yes, the ones that you mentioned, right, it does create a new window or a different type of window of sort of reflection of what things on the inside are, right? So one of the good things about open source, but it could also be an Achilles heel if you're not careful about it, is that you will care a lot about the quality of the code that you're open sourcing, because now obviously you have unlimited pairs of eyes looking at it. But if you're not conscious of that and you actually open source Things that are low quality, then that might give a threat actor indications of how things are internally as well, right? So it, you have to be conscious of that. So that's a challenge. It does present opportunities for for mistakes, right? Of keys, sensitive values being exposed through open source. Because let's say we have something that was closed source into, uh, within DataDog and we decided to open source and we didn't do a full review of making sure nothing was there. So we've had those concerns, right? And it's way more than I've dealt with career-wise in the past, so it's quite a challenge. But again, going back to people caring, like that means that we have more than just a security team looking for those things, right? So that's that's a benefit where we have engineers who care and they will do their own sort of process of making sure that A, the code is, is the, of the quality standard that Datadog has, uh, which is pretty high, and making sure that we're not leaking things there that we don't want people to see. And then how do we receive security signals from from multiple channels? This goes back to how do we actually enable the teams to be able to handle those signals and approach us when they need help versus maybe trying to get security in the way of everything, right? We have a a pretty large scope to cover as a business. So again, we have to make sure we prioritize where we, where do we spend the energy, right? So... If we have an open source repository and we've leveraged, let's say, GitHub's disclosure settings where you can de- define what those are, then we work internally what that process needs to look like or leverage what we already have existing, right? So just reusing a lot of what works for us.
0: All right. You mentioned that's a large scope. And so, yes. How many how many persons at Datadog uh, today, Emilio?
1: Last I checked, we're, we're about 25 to 2,700. And we've, we've been growing pretty massively. You know, we manage billions, if not trillions of transactions, right, of observability transactions for our customers. And we have thousands of Kubernetes uh, <laughs> workloads running. And so the, the scale is pretty massive. But we we have a significant amount of energy and talent focused on, on working on that.
0: So one thing that uh, I really find impressive is you coming in a new company. And so you're here, you need to really understand what's happening. And you mentioned prioritization. So how do you, what was your personal strategy as an individual, but who's a C-level individual in that company? How did you manage to cope with that to understand the context and to get your mental model of Datadog security?
1: Yeah, and it's still something I'm working on, right? I think I think that the environment is so large and, and I don't even know if I will be able to get to the point where I can say, I know where, where all the, the skeletons in the closets are or, you know, everything about everything. And maybe I shouldn't, right? So my personal strategy behind it is my first three months have been nothing but meeting with people, understanding, asking them, you know, what are their priorities? What do they care about? Where do we want to go? You know, being a CISO, meeting with the business executives and the leadership team and the board and understand what do they care about, right? And how can we help? Understanding a little bit of the past from the sense of I care less about the decisions that are already made because those are there's made decisions. You can't do anything about them. I care more about understanding the, why that decision was made. What were the constraints? What were the, the, what was the environment that led us to those decisions? So that way we can understand how do we improve from those, especially decisions that, Coming in as a new person, you go, mm, you know, I would have done it differently, but I don't judge past decisions, right? I think decisions were made because they were the right decisions to be made at a certain time. So I remove sort of that mindset out of my system and, and just care more about how do we move forward. So it's been meeting everyone, getting understanding of where we're going. You show up with an open mind, people will come to you with their problems, right? And that's been the case. So taking a lot copious notes and try to understand. But then going to the teams, right, I joined a team, inherited an organization that already had priorities defined for a quarter, working for the next quarter. So decided to not disrupt any of that and let sort of the flow go where it's going and then slowly introduce whatever changes I think are necessary for the benefit of the company. But hard to introduce change when I don't know where the organization is going, right? So I focus more on that first.
0: Of course. And so I guess that means uh, meeting with any kind of stakeholders, because part of that is also understanding where the company is going from a strategic standpoint. You want to be really tied to the business and to whatever value the company is willing to provide to their customers. And so the, according to their roadmap. So I guess that's also ensuring that you have a, a perfect alignment with uh, everyone at uh, any level of the company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a perfect alignment, but I think it's, it's workable enough. Right. And I'm a believer on disagree and commit, right? So like I mentioned, like there's already a flow of things happening. So if I disagree with any of them, we were already committed to working on them, right? So I wasn't going to disrupt any of that. But getting enough alignment to understand what are the now, the soon and the later concerns, and then really do some strict prioritization personally of like, what are the things I need to work on now versus in the future? And then You know, coming in new to organization, there's nothing wrong with you relying on people to guide you, right? Guide you and help you, right? So Datadog does a great job of assigning you a buddy and a mentor and then meeting people, right? So I just don't focus on leaders only. Uh, There are influencers in organizations who are individual contributors, right? So try to meet the people who either have been here for a while or are respected enough that they can influence change. And those are the partners that you want to build coming into organization because, you're not going to do it by yourself, right? And you need a lot of help. So I wouldn't say I've gotten perfect alignment, but at least alignment enough that we can continue moving forward with what our priorities are, and then slowly introduce whatever new philosophy I think we need. We need to start thinking of at different levels, right? At the tactical technology level, process, business level. You know, I think a CISO is part. It's a business stakeholder, right? So being part of the business and having an opinion about sales leads and marketing and all the areas of the business that we care about, not just be the security person in the room, because then that means they're only getting 2% value out of you when they want 100%, right? So so understanding how those departments work and what they care about and having an opinion and helping them is as valuable as a CISO.
0: When I was a pen tester, uh, we had a recurring joke that was like 15 years ago. So things have changed for the best. But the joke was, oh, look at the CISO. That's easy to find in a company that's the person who will always eat alone at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and and so that was, sadly, that was kind of true back in the days. And so for the best, things have changed a lot. And so uh, that's uh, really uh, earthwarming to listening to you your as your CISO function like that. And so I guess this takes a lot of leadership, right, to identify those right individuals and to bring them with you.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And I think the transition that you're seeing is from CISOs that maybe drove change to authority, now where you're gonna see CISOs driving change through influence, right? And my feedback and my advice to, to anyone who talks to me that they wanna be on the CISO path is learn, right? Security becomes, in my opinion, security expertise is always gonna be important for the CISO, but if you have the right team then you let them handle the security aspects. I think as CISO should worry more about the philosophy and psychology and how to communicate, how to motivate people, how to influence people. Right. So I'm a book reader, so I keep warning every single person who I meet. You can ask my new team of how many times I said I'm going to be throwing books at you. But you know, one of the great books that, that I think is still valuable today and it's been it was written a long time ago is is How to Win Friends and Influence People. So reading books like that, understanding how do you actually How do you know, how do you put yourself in the other person's shoes, right? Like there's a book that Jennifer Tejada from PagerDuty Duty recommends is like grit, right? Yeah, you need to read about like, how do you work with people who've gone through challenges and how you find them, but how do you empathize with them? So I, I would advise any security person or any technical person who wants to go into a leadership role that to to focus more on that side of the house versus... Being the go-to person for technical knowledge, because people are not going to measure you that way, the higher you go, the, the sort of the leadership route, and they want more out of you. And it's not the, for a CISO, it's not like, tell me about security, it's, it's tell me about the business, right? And you can't get that unless you know how to talk to people.
0: So the books you mentioned, they are all about the human elements, the psychological element. Of course, that's critical, I think, in any leadership position, but you also mentioned the business, right? So it's like uh, you are in a public company. The business does not flow by itself. Also, how did you learn about that?
1: Yes, that's very true, right? Joining a public company, you have to learn about terminologies that maybe you weren't exposed to before, right? So I'll give kudos to, to Joe Sullivan from Cloudflare. He recommended a book that I was a little bit skeptical about. I ended up reading and enjoyed it thoroughly. It's called How Finance Works, right? It talks about how you actually value companies, how you evaluate companies, sorry, and describes things like balance sheet, right? Like what liability is long term, short term. So if you're like me who, who had to take accounting classes in college, but then fell asleep through the or slept most <laughs> through most of them. I will highly recommend you read those. You know, I follow the venture capital firms, right? And it's more to, not necessarily because I'm interested in being an investor myself, but more of how do they actually find value in companies that they invest in? What are the things that they look for? What does growth actually mean, right? Like, what do you optimize for? Growth, stability, hyper growth, some sensible growth, right? They've been... I love hearing these perspectives and learning from these people. So yes, absolutely. There is an element of the business that you have to learn as a public company of what you can, can't say, what does it mean? Leverage board members. If you're a member of a public company, like partner with board members who are there to help you. And there's nothing wrong with showing weakness, right? They hire you for a reason. And the reason wasn't because you had 100% of the answers because they think you can contribute to what's already there. So understand your limitations and leverage people who can compliment you.
0: That may be a great uh, ending note, Emilio. (laughs) Well, Emilio, thank you very much for your time today. I really uh, appreciate having you here. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I wish you the best of luck as a CISO of a successful and fast-growing company.
1: Thank you. No, thanks for having me. This was really interesting and fun. Thank you. Good questions. I love them.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of AppSec Builders. You can find all the resources discussed during this show on www.appsecbuilders.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on our upcoming episodes.